Welcome to episode 49 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now here's your host, Eric Gall. Hey friends, welcome to the podcast. Excited to bring you another episode today with guest Dr. Yona Lunsky. And I'll get into uh, Dr. Yona Lunsky's bio and what we're going to talk about in just a second. Uh, Just some quick housekeeping items. Uh, The website empoweringability.org still undergoing a bit of an update just to make it simpler for you to use and also adding the opportunity uh, for you listeners to contribute to this work and to the podcast uh, if it's providing you value Um, and doing it in a way and with keeping the podcast completely free but if it's something you feel compelled to uh, contribute to because it's adding to your learning um, and supporting you uh, or one of your loved ones, or maybe even uh, it's helping the individuals within your organization. You're uh, more than welcome to, to contribute. So that'll be coming in the next couple of weeks. I'll have a bigger announcement coming up with the next podcast, which is episode 50, uh, which I'm pretty proud of uh, reaching that milestone. So you'll hear more about that in, uh, in the next episode in a couple of weeks on episode 50. So uh, this week's episode, uh, our, again, our guest is Dr. Yona Lunsky, and I consider Dr. Lunsky to be one of the best experts in the world in terms of developmental disabilities and mental health. And I'm confident in saying that because there just aren't all that many of them. And Yona really knows her stuff, and she's able to explain things in a very, a very digestible way uh, that we can take those uh, those ideas and implement them into our lives. So um, it's a really pleasurable conversation to uh, to listen to with with Yona. Uh, I won't go too too much into her bio because she shares uh, a lot of her bio in her story, uh, which is one of the first questions that I ask her. So you'll hear that directly from from Yona. And on this podcast, Yona shares a little bit about her personal story with her sister, uh, her older sister, who has a developmental disability. We talk about mental health in the developmental disability community, how to notice mental health challenges, and we discuss what you can do about those uh, mental health challenges or or what what you can do when you notice that there might be something going on with with someone's mental health. So a uh, really practical episode that I'm excited to bring to you. And without further ado, here's Dr. Yona Lenski. Hey, Yona. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm looking forward to our talk. Yeah, me as well. And um, I've been uh, looking forward to this conversation and it's been on my mind for a little while. And um I think you actually sparked the the idea or the topic that we're going to talk about today in terms of health and mental health um, when we're having lunch. So we were talking about how a lot of the conversation today in the disability community is around inclusion and belonging and housing. And um, somewhere in, in the midst of that or the middle of that, um, there's there's health and 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 it's not a topic that we're talking about a heck of a lot that I see. So I'm excited to chat with you about it today. Um, 
because it's super important. So, but before we get into that, could you maybe share, Yona, a little bit about yourself uh, and and if you're open, your your story, maybe a bit about you and your sister and and what you do professionally. Sure. Um, so I guess I I come to this field kind of honestly. I wear a couple of different hats. So in my daytime job, uh, I'm a scientist. So I direct a, a center that focuses on sort of mental health issues. That has really uh, Center for Adult Neurodevelopmental Disabilities and Mental Health, and that's at CAMH here downtown in Toronto. Uh, and so I lead research there, and I also I teach in the Department of Psychiatry at University of Toronto, which is one of the largest psychiatry departments in North America, sort of helping our future psychiatrists uh, feel more ready, I guess, to support uh, people who have developmental disabilities in their in their psychiatric practices. So that's kind of my teaching and my research focus. And I'm also trained as a psychologist. Uh, and my interest is really, you know, people with developmental disabilities, particularly, I guess, in adolescence and adulthood, as well as supporting their families. Uh, and I think I'm probably interested in all of those things, uh, first of all, because they're fascinating and they're really important, but also growing up um, with a sister with a developmental disability, it's always sort of been uh, front of mind or or part of what I do. And I you know, often I think some of the ideas that I um, think about or focus on, I, I sort of relate to my my own uh, experiences in my family or, you know, makes me ask certain kinds of questions. What happens in my own family? Uh, is this just us or is this happening to other people too? So there's a lot of back and forth, I think, between what happens in my family life and, and what happens in my work. Mm-hmm. And um, is your sister older or, or younger than you, Yona? Yeah, my sister's three years older than me, and uh, I'm really lucky. She lives uh, about a 12-minute drive from my house, uh, and she has lived uh, close to me for uh, most of my life. So uh, when I moved away to go to school, uh, not too long after that, um, she actually moved into a supported uh, kind of apartment setting. Uh, Now it's really more of a group home kind of setting, Um, and I was only away for I guess a total of about eight years. Uh, and since then I've lived very, very close to where she lives here in the city. Yeah. You and I share that and that our, our sisters are both three years older than, than us. And, um, and my sister lives really close with me, uh, as well. She actually moved in with me two weeks ago. So, um, that's been an exciting couple of weeks. Wow. I can imagine. Yeah. And I'm curious for you, did, your experience um, having a, a sibling with a developmental disability, did that influence you to um, to the career path that, that you've been on? Yeah, it's always, it's an interesting question. I think people sometimes think that everybody who grows up in this way is like focuses on this kind of thing. And I, I um, we were a family of four siblings. I, I'm the only one who chose this career path. So mm-hmm. it's not, not something everyone does. And I, I probably pushed myself really far away from it. Uh, before I came back to it. But I think I was I was actually quite stunned. I remember sort of studying psychology, which I thought was really interesting, and being really surprised at how little mention there was of all of the things you study in psychology as it relates to this group. And I thought, wow, that's weird. That's a bit of a gap. Uh, so I wonder if we could sort of focus on that more. So I just, I found myself coming back in uh, through my interest in psychology. But I, I don't think I thought to myself when I was certainly a, a kid or even a young adult, this is the the group of people I want to focus my career on. Mm-hmm. It just happens right. gradually. Because you know what? You live it, you know. I mean, I didn't just get to know my sister in my childhood. I got to know all of her friends. And 
you know, I spent, I guess, a lot of time just quite naturally being part of the disability community growing up. Um, so it's, it's, it's a group I've always felt kind of comfortable with. And I, my first, you know, summer job was working with people with disabilities. And, you know, I met a lot of like-minded people and it just, it just made sense. So on the topic of health, um, I guess health in general in a broader context, why is it, in your opinion, why should we be talking about it as in the disability community? That's two questions, isn't it? What, why should we and why don't we? I think we should be talking about it because, you know, health is, health is this fundamental thing that is important to all of us. You know, it should be equally as important for people with developmental disabilities as it is for people who don't have those disabilities. Because if we're healthy, there's all kinds of things we get to enjoy in our lives. Uh, if, if we're not healthy, then that can impact our ability to work. It impacts where we can live. It impacts how much money it costs for us to do things day to day and what kind of activities we can be involved in. Uh, and we know that um, people with developmental disabilities are less healthy uh, or have and have more health problems than, than, than people who don't have developmental disabilities. And, I mean, I've, I've been studying that sort of, you know, academically for several years now with, with a number of other people. But I think even just thinking about people's, you know, experiences, it's something you just kind of know. And I, and I think what's important is there's, there's lots of reasons maybe why they're less healthy. It's not, it's not necessarily inherent in the disability. It's not like there's disability in itself is not a sickness, right? Um, but how we sort of, um, how we manage our health um, and all the barriers, I think, that come up for people when they have developmental disabilities uh, can impact their health. And, and maybe that's one reason why they have more problems. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm just thinking through that. Is there like that the health piece impacts and it can can impact an individual's uh, opportunity to be involved in community if they're not well. It can impact um, the support that they might need at home. It can impact. There's so many things, right, that it can impact. So now I know you focus in on on mental health. So can you maybe talk to? I mean, in general, there's a lot of talk and focus on mental health in in our culture today um can you speak to the i guess this maybe the state of mental health in the disability community and i'm curious are there any differences that you see between i guess the wider population and the disability community in terms of mental health yeah and again i mean i think i'm most sort of as a researcher a clinician most comfortable in the day that i've uh, been working with really focuses on developmental disabilities mm-hmm. More specifically, I, I I think some of the things that that impact that community may also impact um, other people in the disability community. But there's some sort of unique sort of barriers or issues that come up when you have uh, more of a developmental kind of, um, uh, I guess, sort of condition or issue. I, you know, we're all we're all impacted. Uh, you know, we we have we have physical health, we have mental health, right? So, um, how how we feel day to day about ourselves, things like our self esteem things like our thoughts that we can do good things in this world, that we're important, that people like us, our, our anxieties and our worries about things, what's going to happen today, what's going to happen next week, what am I afraid of, you know, the, the self-worth that we have, all of that. That's part of our mental health, right? That's how, how we feel about ourselves as people and how we manage with the thoughts in our heads and the feelings, you know, we carry in our hearts. And, you know, if we look at just the numbers, um, we see that the the likelihood of having a mental health 
problem or what we might call a mental illness is much greater for people with developmental disabilities than for people without. Um, and the attention we give to promoting mental health, you know, our target audience tends to be people who don't have developmental disabilities. So that kind of messaging, that work that we do to help us feel good about ourselves and have good mental health may not reach the disability community in the same way, especially if you maybe aren't as literate and you don't understand complex language as well. Um, so that, that information sort of may not be getting to you. I mean, even the simple an issue, Eric, like to even understand how I'm feeling in terms of my mental health, I have to have certain language. I have to, I have to understand different emotions and I have to be able to recognize those emotions in myself. And I have to feel like, you know what, it's okay. Sometimes I might feel stressed or I might feel anxious or I might feel sad or I feel angry. I have to recognize what that feels like, what it feels like in my body, what kind of thoughts I have, what to call that, and that that is a feeling people have. And, and when you have this feeling, you should do, you know, uh, X or Y, right? But for people with developmental disabilities, they don't even necessarily learn that language, learn that skill, you know, starting from when they're kids, to be able to differentiate different emotions, to know what to do with those emotions. So kind of right away, I think, um, their, their, their efforts they can uh, take themselves to work toward good mental health are kind of, um, you know, they're at a bit of a, a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if you think about all the things that affect mental health for us, like what, what makes us feel uh, healthy, you know, inside, uh, you know, in terms of our, you know, again, our feelings and our thoughts. And it's, it has to do with the behaviors, the things we do every day. Are we engaged in meaningful activities? Um, you know, do we have adequate income to get the things that we need? Uh, can we manage stress? Do we have too much stress around us? Are we isolated? Do we have friendships? Do people like us? Do we get along with our family? Um, are we proud of the things that we do? Do we have really interesting things we get to do day to day? Do people make fun of us? All that kind of stuff impacts our mental health. And again, people with developmental disabilities are more isolated, have uh, fewer friendships, uh, are ridiculed and made fun of and bullied uh, and excluded from things um, and don't necessarily do things that make them feel good or happy and don't have the same opportunities to develop skills and contribute. So all of that is going to affect mental health, right? And then, you know, what do you do when you start to have a little bit of a mental health issue? Well, you've got that language about your own mental health, right? That, and you know you need a little bit of help and you talk to someone or you reach out or you read something. But if you don't have that language, you don't have anyone to reach out to, you know, you don't know how to find something to read. What do you do with that? Right. So it then becomes up to other people to notice there's a problem. And in fact, we're worse at noticing there's a problem if somebody has a developmental disability than if they don't. So it's harder for people with those disabilities to talk about those issues and flag them. And we don't do a great job of noticing them. So by the time we do notice, you know, it's a it's 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 pretty late in the game. And and one thing we know about mental health is that the more proactive we can be in supporting people and promoting their mental health, the better. And sort of the further along people get and the more distressed they are, you know, we can still make a difference and, and help them, but it's harder than if we could have gotten to them sort of earlier in the trajectory. Mm. So I think all of those things are going on for people with developmental disabilities, which makes their mental health worse. In the um, research that we did for the sibling collaborative, which um, you served as a as an advisor for Helen, Becky, and I on that. So I appreciate that, Yona. Um, but one of the findings was the concern of 
of siblings, kind of we'll call you know the typical sibling, concerned that their sibling with a, a developmental disability um, was experiencing mental health, and 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 that was one of the top concerns. And the second, or I think it was the second or the third concern that um, siblings had was their parents' uh, mental health. So I'm curious. Uh, I think the stats for the general population is something like one in five people experience um, mental health challenges. Has the research showed any percentages in terms of um, people with developmental disabilities experiencing mental health challenges? Yeah, again, it's always, you know, how do you, how do you come up with the numbers? So if you do a study where you survey people and call them on the phone and ask them, mm-hmm. uh, how often do people with developmental disabilities pick up the phone? So, so it depends on how we do our study to get that kind of answer. And like I said, if you don't have that language to describe those things yourself, and if other people are really bad at noticing, then we're probably going to underestimate how much these things are going on. Um, one thing we did through a program that I direct called HCARD, the Healthcare Access Research and Developmental Disabilities Program, is we looked across Ontario at all um, adults with developmental disabilities under the age of 65. And we said, in a two-year period, how many of you um, received a psychiatric diagnosis from a physician? And then we just compared that to people who didn't have developmental disabilities in the province. And what we found was that uh, about, you know, over over 40% of adults with developmental disabilities, right? So that's like two and five. So not quite half, but getting close to it, you know, had a psychiatric diagnosis given to them in a two-year period. And that was much higher than that sort of one in five type stat that you're reporting for people who don't have developmental disabilities. Okay, so the, the so yeah, is- it's a big picture, and, and we see that in older adults, we see that in younger adults, we also see the same pattern in in kids and in in teens. So it's a pretty consistent finding. The exact percentage is going to vary based on how you do the study and where the study was done, but we know that these things are more common for this group. And again, I think the bigger problem isn't just that these these types of problems are more likely; it's that they're less likely to get the help that they need. So even though this group as a whole needs mental health support more than other people, you know, very few mental health providers are trained to offer that kind of support. Um, So again, if you get support at all, you're going to get it late in the game and you might not get the right kind of support. So there's, there's an interesting term, diagnostic overshadowing. So that's one of the things that goes on. And and it um, basically kind of suggests that if, you know, uh, I presented with real obvious symptoms of depression and you were a clinician and you saw me be like, wow, yeah, you've got depression. So here's all the things we can offer based on that. But if somebody with a developmental disability presented with those exact same things, the clinician might say, oh, look at your developmental disability. That must be your disability there, you know, and completely miss that the depression is also going on and therefore not treat it. Right. So, um, so I think we definitely miss these things. You know, and and again, if you don't have a great sort of language base to describe what's happening to you or people aren't listening, um, then you're not going to get the help that you need. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that two out of five um, people with a developmental disability experiencing mental illness might be an underreported number because, as you mentioned, a lot of people with developmental disabilities don't have the language to express how they're feeling, um, or to express the experience that they're that they're having. Um, so, would you suggest that 
one of the antidotes or, or treatments, it would be to, to help people with developmental disabilities understand those emotions. And the other, one of the other things that you mentioned earlier that stood out was isolation. So um, an antidote to that being developing and deepening relationships. Those are just two things that, that came to mind to me that could be powerful tools. Can you share your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's all sorts of things we can do to prevent mental health problems from emerging. And then there's all kinds of things we can do once a problem has emerged. So I think knowing that this group is is at greater risk, that it's more likely these things will happen to them. And that, you know, we know that things like bullying, you know, are, are clearly related to mental health difficulties. Um, so yeah, we can work with our whole community to be a more accepting community. We can give people skills to know what to do when things are happening to them that make them feel crummy um, or hated or, um, you know, not included or less than. Um, we can help people learn how to have uh, positive relationships. I would, I would warn against, I think sometimes we think, well, they're socially isolated. Let's make sure we give them lots of relationships that, you know, just as difficult as being uh, isolated and having very limited social support is being stuck in social relationships that are really stressful. So we need to not only make sure that people have uh, positive social relationships, but they're in fact positive to them, right? That they have good skills to have reciprocal relationships where there's a lot of back and forth, where it's not stressful, where people are not taking advantage of you or demanding too much of you, you know? Um, so I think there's lots of skills we can help people develop so that they have good, positive relationships that meet their needs. So. One person might like to be around a lot of people and talk a lot, and someone else might like to be just physically active, involved in a lot of activities, but not a lot of conversations. And somebody else might do really well with just a little bit of one to one and someone kind of checking in on them, but a lot of downtime that's, you know, with themselves, where we have those differences, right? So why wouldn't that kind of variation also exist if you have a developmental disability? But I think having the right kind of relationships for you. Is, is one important piece. Doing things that are meaningful and, and important to you is really important. So one thing we see actually, if we look at when people with developmental disabilities tend to sort of go into crisis, sort of more mental health crisis, you know, go to the emergency department, get hospitalized for the first time, often that kind of stuff emerges in uh, late adolescence and young adulthood. You know, and I don't think it's a coincidence that that happens, you know, for example, when your friends and the activities and the people who know you really change when you finish school, right? So not having anything to do during the day and hanging out in the basement watching TV yeah. isn't going to make you feel amazing about yourself. You know, losing your friendships and the structures and the things you enjoy doing, not having those things replaced by something else or trying to do a job but failing because you don't have the support in place, those things hurt you. They hurt your mental health, um, so, so there's certain times where I think we really need to sort of beef up our supports. Um, but, but I think these things can happen to all of us at any point in our lives. So another, I guess, sort of skill or important piece is kind of noticing when there's a little bit of a change, when a kind of small mental health issue is emerging. Um, you know, I think, like I say, it's, it's really much easier to address a small problem than it is to address a big problem. Um, so you yourself, as someone with a disability, having that kind of language or recognition that something's different and people around you kind of watching you and noticing there's been a change is, is really important. So when we talk about how to diagnose a mental health problem, um, sometimes what we do in the general population is we kind of say, well, if you, 
you know, show this symptom, this symptom, and this symptom, that's depression, right? Or if you have this problem, this problem, this problem, that's anxiety. So you're different than other people, which we're going to call typical, and that means you have this kind of problem. Okay, so it's comparing you to other people in a similar situation saying, wow, you're managing in a different way. That might be a mental health problem. But the other way to recognize that there's a mental health problem is kind of comparing yourself to yourself. So I say kind of know your baseline, uh, or as uh, uh, folks in the UK have said, know your normal. So it's really important that we're comparing ourselves right now to how we've been when we were at our best. So it's not just noticing you act differently than other people, but it's you're acting differently now than you used to act before. What has changed for you? So having that skill of kind of noticing when there's something that's different, um, you know, in somebody with a developmental disability that they might recognize it or that you might recognize it and be able to um, bring some attention to it to understand why it's there and, and how, how to get things back to maybe where they were. Mm -hmm. And so let's, let's maybe walk through an example. So let's say maybe I noticed that my sister isn't at her best, right? Or she's, she's, um, decline from her her normal and you know maybe she, i'm noticing she's not as happy she doesn't want to do things um what what are some some things that i could do as as a brother um to support my right well i think the first thing you're doing you're being a detective you're noticing there's a change right and it's going to be really important you know if you you want to see someone to talk about that. I mean, obviously, you can talk about it with your sister. You can talk about it with your mom and dad. Um, but also, if you're going to be describing some of this to a mental health professional, you have to be able to say, you know, what what was the normal from before, right? What what were things like and what has actually changed? And the more specific you can be, Eric, the better, right? So what does it mean not to look happy? You know, what's that like in a given day? Walk through with me what a, what a day is like in the life of your sister now and how is that different than how it was before? Right. So being really concrete, I think, is one important piece. And then it's a bit of a um, sort of, again, sort of more detective work to kind of figure out there's so many things that could be contributing to that. And it's not always a mental health problem. So your sister might look like she's less happy. And, you know, it might actually be because she's, you know, actually got this sort of new constant nausea that she's dealing with. Right. Or actually her hearing is changing. And she's just kind of irritated all the time because she hears this kind of buzzing noise in her ear and it's really hard for her to focus on people and it kind of discourages her, right? So the very first thing we have to do, and I'm, I'm going to walk through an acronym, um, HELP, uh, which is just one way to kind of think about these pieces um, developed by one of my colleagues, Elspeth Bradley. Uh, H is, is the sort of the health. So the very first thing we have to look at is what is going on in terms of your sister's health that may have changed. Because it could be, like I say, it could be her hearing. It could be um, that she, you know, one thing that looks like depression is hypothyroidism. So if your thyroid isn't functioning properly, um, you can have symptoms that look a lot like depression. But actually, the treatment is for the thyroid. It has nothing to do with, you know, activities during the day or, um, you know, a, an antidepressant you need to be taking for your brain, right? So, so is there a medical issue contributing to this problem? And then we've kind of taken a re and, it, and, and, and to emphasize how important that first part looking at health issues is, because if your sister isn't great at reporting or noticing all those medical things, you know, there could be something going on that's actually quite serious and quite intense. And, 
you know, and, and, and it's never been noticed. So you've really got to check out all the health stuff to make sure that's not what's contributing. And if it is, address those things. And is your, still, is your sister still looking, you know, quite as unhappy? And then you need to look at sort of what's going on in that environment. So that's the E from health. And really understanding, you know, what are the supports and expectations right now? Are people expecting too much of your sister? Is it sort of just too demanding and stressful an environment that she's in, either at home or where she's going to work or in her local, you know, library or wherever she likes to hang out? Um, or are people actually expecting too little of her? Like they think she doesn't really have any skills and they put her down and that's upsetting to her, right? So is there a good match between what's going on in her situation currently and what she really feels she's able to do? And again, if the match is poor, address it and make the match better. And if she's still seeming like she's not quite herself and she's unhappy, what kinds of things have happened, you know, in the very recent past and sometimes in the more distant past that might be contributing to this upset? So, you know, stress is a really big issue for all of us. And stress is an even bigger issue if you have a developmental disability. So are there things that have happened for your sister? Has she been bullied? Has she been ostracized? Has she, uh, you know, has someone in your family died or gotten sick or moved away? Um, has she lost a friend? Um, has she lost a job? Has she had a change in her routine? Um, you know, what, what has changed in her situation that might be a bit of a loss or a difficulty for her? Um, because that can make her feel really awful, but it's less something kind of internal to her and more something that is really, you know, triggered by something that happened around her. So the way we would kind of treat it or respond to it would be through understanding that experience for her. And then once we sort of looked at all those things, that's the H, the E, and the L, the life events, then we're sort of left with, uh, you know, something that could be psychiatric or mental health, uh, you know, uh, more generally. Uh, and it could be depression, it could be anxiety. And then there's different kinds of things we can do to support that. Um, you know, it might be that counseling or talking to someone makes a difference. You know, uh, engaging in an activity that makes you feel good, if you're able to do it, might help. Um, a medication might be helpful. So there's all kinds of different things we can look at doing to address that issue once we figured out kind of what the issue is and maybe why, what's, what's led to it. Pardon the pun, but that's helpful. So <laughs> as, a, as a family, um, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about this. And and also, if my sister listens to this or my parents listen to this podcast, I'm just using my sister as an example for to help us exactly. think through it. I, I'm not seeing. Okay. Yeah, I'm not seeing. Perfect. I'm not seeing. Um, you know, mental health issues pop up for my sister at the moment. So, thinking through this mod, this help model as a family would would you suggest to go through? this model as a family unit or, or, you know, or as a sibling, as a parent, like looking at health expectations, life events first before going and seek, seeking professional help or what, what suggestions might you have on that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, given I was saying before, you don't want to wait too long when things are bad. So it's not like you have to do two years of investigation before you're allowed to ask for help. <laughs> so it's important to think about all those contributors yourself, because when, you know, somebody else who doesn't know you at all and doesn't know your sister very well at all is trying to figure out what's going on, understanding all those pieces is really important. So sometimes, you know, I, I, I talk about help. Some of my colleagues talk about help. We're trying to encourage people to think in that way. But, you know, people don't always think in that way. So um, you may go to a mental health person and they 
may not be as experienced in the area of development disabilities and they may forget that step around physical health contributors, right? So let's say uh, your sister, and I'm sorry we're picking on your sister, it might not really be her, it could be your brother or it could be my sister. Let's say there's constipation and that's going on. That's one of the biggest issues actually for this population that's leading to terrible discomfort and sort of upset and excruciating pain. And nobody's noticing it, but they're just seeing all this behavior that just seems like really agitated or really withdrawn. You know, someone doesn't want to like get out of bed anymore or do anything. You know, if the person is only using a mental health lens and they don't realize that sometimes people with development disabilities might have a problem like constipation, but not even know what's called constipation because nobody's asked them when the last time was that they went to the bathroom and they may not ask about it. So they'll miss it. So I think certainly having a really good relationship with your family doctor and every year making sure that, um, that, that, that uh, you know, if you have a disability and if you don't, but especially if you have a disability, making sure that you're physically healthy in all the different areas and that everything is working okay um, first. And that any time a new mental health sort of situation kind of emerges, making sure first things first, let's look and make sure it isn't something medical that's going on. Uh, and then it's that thinking part, you know, what is the environment? Like what has changed? What is going on? What are things that have happened that have really impacted, you know, my brother or my sister? I think thinking about that information is going to be really helpful to share with a mental health provider in terms of getting that whole picture because, because our interventions have to take all of these different things into account. So the more of that work we can do ourselves, I think that's helpful. And there's tools that kind of lay out some of those things you might want to think about that people can look toward to help them in doing that kind of, quote, detective work. But it's also work you can do, you know, together in conversation with a mental health professional. Right. And there's a good resource that you created along with Jonathan Weiss called Dual Diagnosis and Information Guide um, that I'll attach to the to the show notes in the blog so that um, folks can get more information from that. But dual diagnosis is, I think that's the first time I've used this term so far today in our conversation. Can you share uh, what that means for, for folks where it might be a term that this is the first time they've heard it or they've heard it and they're not exactly sure what that means. Yeah. And it's one of those terms where I kind of go back and forth and whether I use it or not myself, because people do kind of, well, what does that mean? Could it be any two diagnoses? You know, if I have autism and also cerebral palsy, is that a dual diagnosis? Um, uh, the way some people think about it is they think it refers to both having a developmental disability and also having um, a mental illness or a psychiatric disorder. Um, but, uh, but it gets confused with other kinds of terms and that kind of thing. So I just generally actually say, you can call it that if that works for you, or you can just say, uh, having a, a mental health problem and also having a developmental disability at the same time. Okay. That was, so, that and was yeah, that's a nice, and we each have a, a longer, a longer version of that resource, Eric, called a family guide, uh, on dual diagnosis, which gives uh, sort of even more examples on just kind of things to look for, ways to think about it and sort of ways to. Um, support your family member um, with a developmental disability and also kind of to support or pay attention to yourself, uh, which I think was, again, an issue that kind of came up in that sibling study, right? So both the mental health of the parents and also um, the mental health of brothers and sisters themselves. Okay. I was going to say something's going on with your brother or sister or daughter or uncle or whatever, you know, it also affects you, right? It changes. You watch someone you love not doing well, that's going to impact you. Um, and so you also have to be aware of how that's impacting you in ways you can support your own mental health. Right. Is that guide available um, online or is there somewhere that we can direct people to that? Okay. Uh, 
perfect. Yeah, I can send you the link to that and also to a number of different healthcare tools we've developed uh, to help all of us kind of in managing uh, our healthcare uh, and the healthcare of um, you know people in our families who have developmental disabilities. And that the HELP model that I talked about, I can also share with you. We have guidelines that were published, national guidelines actually, for all of Canada for adults with developmental disabilities that kind of go through all the different things we need to be thinking about in terms of health care, both physical health care and mental health care for our family doctors. Uh, and those guidelines talk about the health model and things to think about. So I can share that too. Okay. Fantastic. I'll include that in the blog and in the show notes of the podcast for folks to access. Um, I wanted to touch on medication. So in general, um, we're a, a very heavily medicated society. Um, many of us, I think it's a cultural thing, not wanting to deal with our pain or process it. Um, and we're medicating ourselves. Um, I'm, you know, I'm going to say that I've been guilty of this at, at times, right? So it, for, it could be alcohol or it could be drugs or it could be eating that big tub of ice cream, um, whatever it is for, for you. But in the disability community, um, my understanding is it's a little bit different. So I was, I was curious, can you talk to maybe the use of psychotropic meds um, to in the disability community? And if I'm correct, you might have done some research on this as well. Right. Okay. So setting aside, you know, issues around sort of eating a lot of ice cream or using recreational uh, drugs, whether they're uh, meant for that purpose or meant for another purpose. So talking about sort of prescribed drug use, medications that are prescribed to people with developmental disabilities for psychiatric issues. Uh, it is something I've been really interested in uh, for a long time. And uh, we've been able to study it the same as we've studied sort of the number of people in our province with developmental disabilities who have a psychiatric disorder diagnosis. We've also studied what medications are prescribed. And one thing that's important to understand, because uh, it is really complicated, um, is that if you needed to access mental health supports and you had a developmental disability, in our province, and I would say probably in most parts of Canada, if not all, certain things are funded or paid for for you. Certain things are not. So if you are um, a recipient in Ontario of the disability support plan, um, then your medications are paid for which means that if you were to take an antidepressant or an antipsychotic or an anxiolytic medication, these are all different types of drugs that sort of target different parts of the brain uh, and, would, and in one way can sort of treat or uh, manage a psychiatric disorder. Those drugs are free to you as someone who gets um, you know, your medications covered through the disability program. But other kinds of services like psychotherapy may not be free, right? And you'd have to pay for it. Um, but because the medications uh, are um, prescribed in this way and they're covered by our Ontario uh, sort of benefits, we can also study how many of those drugs have been given out to the population, um, which teaches us some really interesting things. Now, we can't compare how often these drugs are prescribed to people who don't have development disabilities because it's not paid for by the government necessarily. So we sort of don't have that comparison group. But just looking at people with developmental disabilities, we see that, you know, the likelihood of, of filling a prescription is, is pretty high. And the most commonly prescribed drugs are not for, you know, uh, cholesterol or diabetes or asthma. The most commonly prescribed drugs are for psychiatric issues in this population. And in fact, the most commonly prescribed type of drug in this population 
are antipsychotics, which are a pretty, uh, pretty heavy-duty kind of medication, which requires a lot of monitoring. Um, typically, it's given to people who have a psychotic disorder or a serious mental illness. It can sometimes be given what's called off-label for other reasons, um, but not to the extent that it is given uh, to this population. So really, really high rates of those of those medications. And the other concerning thing isn't just which medication is prescribed, but sometimes how many medications are prescribed at the same time. So again, looking at the sort of across the province level, we see that the likelihood of taking like maybe even five or more medications at the same time is not small. So there's a group of people who are taking a lot of medications and they interact with each other, right? And even though they might be um, treating a mental health issue, they also can uh, add to that other kinds of problems or difficulties. So someone might be at risk for falling or have sort of cognitive um, slowing kinds of issues. Their brain doesn't kind of work as quickly or as well, or there may be problems with um, dizziness or problems with sort of metabolic, how you're, um, so issues like things like diabetes can be an issue and weight gain, um, dry mass. There's all kinds of side effects that can come with these medications. So indeed they really might help, um, but they also can harm, especially if maybe they're given for the wrong reason or we're not watching really carefully at how those medications are helping. So the way I would report, if I took a medication and my doctor prescribed it to me, I would say, okay, let me just go on the computer. Let me look at this printout from the pharmacy. I want to see all the side effects. I'm going to tell the doctor right away if I notice any of them. Uh, and then maybe we'll decide if we should stay on this medication, increase the dose, decrease the dose. But if you're not as good at noticing that stuff, or reporting it, and that's the case for people with developmental disabilities, they don't always know why they're taking the medication, and they don't know how to report that are having certain kinds of side effects. Uh, and then, in fact, what we think is the problem that we're treating with the medication might actually be a side effect of a medication, right? So it gets kind of messy. So I think we can do a lot of work in terms of um, being really careful at when and why we prescribe medications and how carefully we're monitoring if indeed they're working or not. Right. So something you said something interesting there around how the system in Ontario is set up. Um, so folks with developmental disabilities have sounds like they have access or are much better access to being prescribed psychotic uh, uh, drugs. Any kind of medication. Any so kind of medication. Our drug benefits mean that your medications are covered. But if you need, you know, to participate in more activities in your community, if you need a job coach to get out there and do a job well and feel good about yourself, if you need um, transportation so you can get where you need to go, if you need better food to make you feel uh, healthy or lose weight, if you need um, to be able to see a psychologist or an occupational therapist um, and you need therapy to kind of um, think through your problems a little differently or come up with better strategies to cope, you know, how free and easily available are those things? Uh, and, you know, so again, whether it's like the obvious, how accessible is say a talk therapy for you, if that's going to help you, but also how available are all these other things that can contribute to good mental health, you know, in addition to your medication. So, and those things are not necessarily available and sometimes they're quite costly. And also the people who can provide them aren't necessarily that well-trained or able to work with people with development facilities. So it can be really hard to find someone. So I, I, get a, I get at least one call every week from somebody saying, you know, can you tell me about someone who can do, you know, let's say cognitive therapy or 
you know, counseling for my son or daughter or for me. Uh, and I don't really have any money. I can't pay for it, but I really need someone to see, to talk to. And I have to say, wow, that's really hard. You know, I can tell you about the services that are available, but there are, you know, really long wait lists, unfortunately, for you to be able to see someone privately in that way, um, especially if you don't have the money to, to pay for it. You know, we've covered a, a fair amount on on mental health here for people with um, developmental disabilities and um and we've talked about the family component as well. Is there anything else that um, that you wanted to talk about that you think would be of value value to listeners? Well, I think you know, sort of dedicating, like anyone who's who's who sat through the first however many minutes of this, um, you know, thank you, thank you for giving that time uh, to think about mental health, uh, and, and hopefully, you know, potentially even talking about it. Like I think. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we, like I said, we don't, we don't have the vocabulary, like we don't talk about it. I think we're sort of scared. Well, if we talk about it, then people will start feeling really bad, right? Or if we talk about it, you know, then the person's going to get anxious or angry. Like we better just say nothing. Things seem okay. Uh, and actually, I think it's really important for us to talk about it and to talk about our own struggles um, and make it something that's really okay to have a conversation about. Because if we avoid talking about it, we don't avoid the problems right? We just avoid, we just give the message that actually it's not okay to have that kind of problem, or I don't want to hear that you're having that kind of problem. You know, I, you know, one thing, you know, thinking about, you know, even maybe how things were like, maybe with my sister, even when she was younger, like, you know, I'm sad. Well, don't be sad, be happy. It's like, well, sometimes that works. And sometimes, yes, it's good to be happy, but actually sometimes it's really good to be sad or, or you are sad, whether it's good or bad. And let's, let's call it that and say, yeah, me too. You know, today I'm having a really crummy day and I feel awful. And sometimes that happens. And here's what I do about it. Right. So not being afraid to have conversations about mental health uh, with all of us. Um, you know, our, at CAMH right now, you, you'll hear we have a whole campaign really focused on mental health is health. You know, it, it's important for us to talk about it. It's just as important an aspect of health as any um, physical aspects of our health. And and sort of taking the time to listen to this podcast and have those co- kinds of conversations, I think, uh, with people in our lives with developmental disabilities is really important. Um, and, and having sort of the resources and things maybe to have those conversations is important, too. And there are a lot of really helpful resources out there. There's even, you know, one tool I like to go to sometimes. It's called Books Beyond Words. And it's not even like a simplified way of talking about it. It's actually just pictures or images. Um, with no words at all that we can kind of use to tell a story or to talk about what might be going on with us, sort of having different ways to get at talking about mental health uh, for people with developmental disabilities, because it, it affects them as much as it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important um, point you share, Yona. Uh, so I guess a question that comes to mind for me is, that might not be in feel like an easy conversation to start or to have. So I'm curious around what could that what could starting that conversation look like? And when I think about that, um, it could simply be asking someone, "How are you feeling?" or "How are you feeling today?" Um, and maybe sharing an observation. Like if if they're not sure, you'd say, "Well, I'm just noticing X or I'm noticing Y." Could you maybe share your thoughts on on how to to begin that conversation or, or even how to approach it? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question, Eric. I mean, I think you're right. How are you feeling is a really good way to open things up. Um, you know, assuming that person knows how to describe how they're feeling. 
right? But I think you're sort of conveying and asking that. You're saying you have feelings, and I really care actually about what those feelings are, good or bad. Um, and I and I and I want to know what's going on. And I noticed, you know, I noticed that you you seem like, you know, you seem a bit sad or you seem a little different than you were the other day. So you're sort of making observations. You're giving them language to kind of describe what might be going on. I think those are really important things. And and equally as important sometimes, especially for people who aren't as good at talking about their feelings, might be also sharing some of your own feelings. You know, well, today was a good day for me. This is what happened. This is why I felt that good. Or, you know, I actually have been finding I've been feeling kind of nervous or anxious or I'm really irritable. So even, you know, noticing if you kind of blew up about something, you know, that's real. That happened. You were agitated. <laughs> wow. What could you do differently? So, so kind of modeling that you also have emotions. Um, and, and, and awareness that sometimes things are difficult. I think that's, that's just as important as helping by asking that person sort of how they're feeling and starting that conversation. Right. Um, yeah. So I, both, right. right. So, so asking about them, giving them the language to talk about what's going on in them, reflecting kind of what you're noticing, but also making sure they're aware that other people also have an emotional life and that sometimes things are difficult for people. You know, even if, even watching TV or watching a movie, you can't, you can't be part of our broader community and not notice mental health, right? So maybe you can talk after you've watched something or read something together, you know, what's going on for that person, why that might be hard for them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, probably maybe the point about having the conversation before there's a problem. Because <laughs> if we all have the language and we notice there's a problem, then we can talk about it, right? If we can't start talking about it until there's a really big problem, um, we've already waited a little bit too long. Mm-hmm. So, but certainly if we notice that somebody is struggling to be able to have that discussion with them and not everybody's able to have that conversation. So I guess keeping that in mind as well. So one person you might have to say, hi, I mean, if you ask my sister how she's feeling, she'd probably say she's feeling great, even if she wasn't, you know, so I have to, I could try to ask the question in a different way. And maybe she would say that she wasn't feeling great if I did. And maybe still she wouldn't. So I'd be really looking at some of my observations and what I noticed that's different. And maybe when we talked about it to a mental health professional, I would use a lot of the examples of things I noticed and not just what my sister would be saying. Right. I really like your point around using uh, your own personal experiences and sharing your reflection upon your emotions. So the example you had, you know, if... Um, I have an outburst uh, of anger for whatever reason, um, you know, and my sister is plays witness to that, um, to maybe sit down after I'm cooled off a little bit and share, you know, I was really angry there and this is how I felt about it. And, and this is why, and maybe, you know, this is how I think I want to, you know, show up in that situation next time. Um, and maybe something that I'd want to change, but I think that's, that's powerful, powerful in, in, in a few ways, but, um, so, you know, showing that you're, you're vulnerable and, um, you're human as well, but also willing to have that open conversation and, and to share in that way, but also to, as you mentioned, um, a lot of people with developmental disabilities don't understand their emotions. So it might help to, to give my sister in this example, more of a, an understanding of what that emotion that I'm, that I'm showing in that, in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And also, uh, making that distinction, Eric, between, uh, kind of what you're feeling in that moment and what you're doing, right? So there's nothing wrong with feeling irritated or angry. Like that just happens. 
right? But like totally destroying the living room is something you try to avoid, right? Or when you're feeling really angry, maybe you say some really awful things that hurt other people. And that might be something also you try not to do. Now, sometimes you do it anyways, and then you have to kind of learn other ways to manage that emotion. But I think separating out the emotion from the behavior uh, is an important piece of the teaching as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also that, you know, maybe you have some ideas, Eric, about things you'd like to do next time, but maybe it's really hard to do those things. So even kind of acknowledging like, yeah, I would really like to not feel that, or I'd like to maybe feel that, but respond differently. And damn, it's hard. Like even when I say I'm not going to blow up, I still blow up, especially if I don't get a lot of sleep, you know, or especially if I like don't have coffee in the morning or if I do have coffee, right? Like. There's lots of re- things that make things more difficult for us. And I think kind of recognizing the struggle might be important to hear as well. Uh, and also, you know, if you're angry, frankly, like all of us, I mean, if, if you're angry and your sister is witness to it, she might have emotions too, right? So there's so many things we can talk about. We can hear kind of what you went through and what you found, what you're going to try, but also like maybe it's hard to watch you angry right? Or maybe your sister feels scared or that makes her kind of angry too, right? So those are all emotion conversations you can have um, that help people appreciate, I care about how you're feeling and I want to hear about how you're feeling, even if it's not feeling great. And it's really important to reach out and tell people when you don't feel great because that's the best way we can help each other, right? If we don't know what you're feeling, we can't do anything. You can't do anything for me. I can't do anything for you. You know, so I think conversations are important. And if it feels like a scary conversation or you don't know how to have a conversation or it doesn't go very far, there's lots of things you can read to, to give you ideas. Um, like I said, there's different kinds of books and resources and things that explain some of the stuff. Um, and it's, you know, it's good, good to read about, good to think about, good to talk about. You know, mental health is health. Let's talk about it. Right. Right. And hopefully this conversation between you and I sparks some more conversations about mental health. Um, Absolutely. I'd love to hear, you know, at your own dinner table, if it does, let me know what happens. And I'd love to hear if, you know, this triggers um, conversations with other people too, because I think, you know, I might have some ideas about some things that would work, strategies that would work, but I think, and this is really important. I think, you know, your sister and your sister knows herself best, you know, better than I know both of you. Right. So I think all of us have really interesting ideas about what's going to work for us and for the people we're closest to in our lives. So I can't prescribe everybody should go out and do this in this way. It may not work for you. So kind of trusting that you have some good ideas uh, based on who you are and who the people are in your family or in your circle about what kinds of things might work and then share that, share those ideas with other people. I love it. Yona, there's been a lot of really rich information. Um, an insight that uh, you've provided us today. Is there any final words or a final message that you want to leave the listeners with? Keep the conversation going. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Value and recognize the importance of these kinds of discussions. Uh, everybody's mental health matters, um, so let's 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 attend to it um, and and not wait till things get really hard. Awesome. That's a great way to wrap up this episode. So Yona, thank you so much for for joining us today. We're going to share um, all those great resources that you mentioned. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to our next conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. 
What a pleasure it was to interview Dr. Yona Lunsky. And I hope that the conversation was valuable for you. Uh, I really appreciate the model that she shared, the help model to really serve as a way to examine uh, an individual's uh, mental health and to kind of have a process to go to go th- through what the different contributing factors could be. So hopefully that's uh, really helpful uh, for you uh, and your family or even you and your work uh, to help identify and, uh, and help individuals with potential mental health challenges. Uh, one disclaimer that uh, I really feel important is to mention, Yona and I had a discussion uh, on the podcast around medication. And a disclaimer for everybody out there, uh, please do not just stop taking any medications that you are on uh please talk to your doctor um, that has prescribed you these medications. Um, However, this podcast hopefully could be a good prompt for you to consider those medications that you're on and your experience on those medications and to have that conversation uh, with your doctor. Uh, I'd encourage that, but please, please, please don't stop taking any uh, of your medications because of the conversation on this podcast without first speaking with your doctor. There was also a lot of resources that Yona mentioned during the podcast conversation. You can find all those on the blog at empoweringability.org and just click on the episode with Yona uh, or you can check out the show notes. Uh, So if you just scroll down um, into the notes on your podcast uh, app, you should be able to find those. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, If you like this episode and you think you know someone that would benefit, please share it with them. Uh, Be a part of the change to think differently about disability. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability build a full and meaningful life.